Uh, we're pleased that uh, Kevin Lee is with us. He will be preaching this morning. Kevin uh, is on our staff with the Oriad Center. He is the director of vocational formation. And so when you have some time and you see Kevin, you can talk to him about what that means and what he does. But it's significant, obviously, in the course of our uh, relationships with the university and with our ministry to uh, university students. Uh, Kevin and Lori have been part of, and their family have been part of our church for many, many, uh, many, many years, and we're grateful for their presence. As I often tell people, I probably don't say this to Kevin because we're guys, but uh, he has blessed me deeply with his friendship and his insight into what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so I commend him as he comes uh, to share with us this morning. Good morning. Oh, the first service was a little bit more alive than the second service. Oh, wow. All right. Uh, if you will uh, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 32, we're going to be reading from this psalm this morning. As you're turning, let me pray for us. Father, your word is life. We know that you speak, and by the power of your word, everything that is is brought into existence. We know that your word brings life where there is death. And your word makes things new. God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds, that we might be awakened to your word, to hear from you that which we need for life, that which we need to love you more deeply, to worship you, to serve you, and to glorify you in our lives. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The word of the Lord. Yeah. 
Uh, several years ago when I was in high school, uh, I went out with a group of uh, my friends one night, and uh, unfortunately, uh, as was likely to happen in those days, my friends and I uh, did a lot of things that we knew we shouldn't do. We did a lot of things that we knew that if our parents knew we were doing them, they would be pretty disappointed uh, in our behavior. And when I went home that night, uh, the, the thought of confessing my wrongdoing or acknowledging my wrongdoing to my father uh, it never crossed my mind. I just went home and went to bed. So you can imagine my shock and surprise the next morning when my father comes in and I'm sleeping and he says, Kevin, get up. John was just here and he told me everything you guys did last night. And I shot straight up out of bed wondering what in the world is going on. And according to my sister's eyewitness testimony that morning, my mom and my dad and my sister were sitting on the front porch drinking coffee. John comes walking up and my father, who wasn't trying to interrogate John at all, just simply said, John, what did you guys do last night? And John responded by just spilling all of the beans in the world right there. I mean, he just shared everything that had happened the previous night. And so when I saw John a few days later, my first question for him was, John, what in the world were you thinking? I mean, what was going through your head that you would just confess this? And John, who was not a serious guy at all, looked at me as serious as he had ever been. And he said, Kevin, I cannot lie to your father. I have to tell your father the truth. See, John and I lived uh, three houses down, but we inhabited two very different worlds. In John's world, any time he did wrong, and he and I did a lot of wrong, uh, there was nothing more than punishment and consequence. And the punishment and consequences were just. They were right because we did a lot of wrong things that deserved punishment. But rarely, if ever, did John... Uh, experience mercy and grace. Rarely, if ever, did he experience forgiveness and restoration. And in the world I inhabited, there was plenty of consequence, plenty of right and just punishment for my wrongdoing. But our home was pervaded by my father's grace and his mercy, his willingness to forgive us when we did wrong and to set things right between us, even when we were the ones guilty And John was like another member of our family. He was like a second son to my dad. And time and time again, John had experienced my father's grace and mercy and his willingness to forgive. Because John knew what it meant to not be forgiven, he understood just how blessed he was to be forgiven by my father. He understood even better than I did. And this morning, the psalmist in Psalm 32, David, he invites us into a world pervaded by God's grace and mercy, pervaded by God's forgiveness. He invites us into this covenantal world where God's forgiveness is the decisive reality for us. And he invites us to see with fresh eyes the profound blessing it really is to be forgiven and to see that this blessing of forgiveness calls us into a life of confession before God. The psalm begins with, blessed is the one. Anytime we see a psalm that begins with this language of blessed is the one or blessed is the man, we know that we're dealing with a a wisdom psalm. And even though all psalms are wisdom literature, there are a handful of psalms that are intentionally wisdom. Uh, And if you remember from Proverbs chapter 8, there's a picture of lady wisdom in the street, passionately 
uh, calling people to listen to her, calling people to come and hear what she has to say because she's trying to instruct them about how to live a life of wisdom, how to live wisely. And she knows that life and death hinges on whether or not we live wisely. And so when we see this language here in Psalm 32 of blessed is the one, uh, we need to grasp that, that there's a sense of urgency in the psalmist's tone. The psalmist is, is, is announcing to us that he has something incredibly important that he wants to share with us. Uh, it's kind of like if my mom ever uh, middle names me. I think I can use that in a verbal sense. Uh, my mom is this very quiet southern woman. And so anytime I hear Robert Kevin Lee amidst the other things, I know oof, I'm being summoned to something really important. And that's what the psalmist is like here when he says, blessed is the one. It's a call to listen closely because life is on the line. And the psalmist is instructing us on what it means to experience God's blessing, how to live a life full of God's blessing. Now, the psalmist does does not have any kind of naive, romantic ideas of what a blessed life looks like. He doesn't think for one minute that to be blessed means that you always have plenty of money, that you're always healthy, that your relationships are always great, that the world always bends its will to you. He knows that to be blessed doesn't mean you always get what you want. For the psalmist, this, this idea of blessing carries with it this uh, a notion of happiness, to be happy. But it's a deeply rooted happiness. It's grounded in a person's awareness that he or she has exactly what is needed for life. And so when the psalmist says, I'm about to tell you what it means to be blessed, he's saying, I'm about to tell you exactly what you need for life. And this should make you happy. And he doesn't, uh, he doesn't build his argument to a conclusion. He starts with a conclusion. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The psalmist is saying, listen, if God has forgiven you of your sin, you should be happy because you have exactly what you need for life. In a sense, you need nothing more than this right here. And the, the psalmist mentions, uh, or he paints three different pictures of what it is that God does uh, to forgive us of our sin in verses 1 and 2. And, and by mentioning this three times, it's again, it's a way that the psalmist is announcing to us, listen, pay attention, this is really important. So we see in verse 1, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This word forgiven carries with it the, the basic idea of carrying a heavy burden. But it also means carrying a heavy burden away or having a heavy burden carried away. And what the psalmist communicates is that our sin, our transgression, is a heavy burden, a burden that's too heavy for us to carry. And when God forgives, he literally takes our burden and he carries it away. This calls to mind imagery from the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement where Israel would lay, uh, the priest would lay the national corporate sin on an animal and then the sin would be, or the animal would be released into the wilderness. And it was meant to convey to Israel, this is what it's like when God forgives you of your sin. Your sin, a burden,
burden is put on someone else and it's carried far away so it can't be seen anymore. The psalmist goes on to say that blessed is the one whose sin is covered. And we know from Scripture that God cannot stand to look at sin, so sin must be hidden from God. This covering is atoning language. When we talk about atonement, we're talking about having sin covered. And it's God who does the covering. The psalmist acknowledges in verse 5, I did not cover my iniquity. It's his way of saying, I gave up trying to cover my iniquity because I know I can't. God is the only one who can cover my sin. And then again in verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now this word counts no, this is imputation language. And when we see in Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 that Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him or imputed to him, as righteousness. What the psalmist is saying here is that I really, a person really can't commits iniquity and it's perfectly right. It's perfectly just for God to count that iniquity to us. We've really done it. But God in his grace and mercy freely chooses not to count that iniquity against us. He doesn't impute it to us. This is such an important idea in the life of faith that Paul takes up this very argument, this very psalm in Romans chapter 4, if you'll turn with me. In one of the most important parts in his argument in the letter Romans, chapter 4, verse 1, we'll read the first eight verses. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or declared righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul's highlighting that it is God's grace and mercy that he chooses not to count to us what should be counted to us. And the psalmist concludes this first section by saying, Blessed is the one whose spirit there is no deceit. And as we'll see here uh, in just a second, when we look at verses 3 and 4, uh, this is best understood as uh, when a person is no longer deceiving himself about his sin. When he's no longer denying his sin, when he's no longer trying to cover his own sin, but when he has confessed this sin, this man is blessed because God has forgiven him. So the psalmist highlights this great work God does on our behalf in verses 1 and 2. And then he switches gears. He wants to make sure that we understand just how blessed we are to be forgiven. So he highlights the destructiveness of sin. 
In verses 3 and 4, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The psalmist is recounting a time when he had unconfessed sin in his life. And, and he's reminding us or, and he's telling us what it was like to have that unconfessed sin. And the language that he uses is that it, to have this unconfessed sin is to be cut off from the source of life. It's to be cut off from communion with God, who is life for us. Now, we need to make sure we're very clear on what we're saying, what we're not saying here. When the psalmist is painting this picture of being cut off from communion with God, he's not in any way indicating that he has been cut off from covenantal relationship with God. His sin doesn't put him outside of the covenant. The psalmist knows that if God makes covenant with people and calls people into covenant with himself, people remain in covenant because God is the one who is faithful to keep them in covenant. But within that context of a covenantal relationship, our sin can cut us off from communion with God. It can cut us off from intimacy with God, from fellowship with God. We know what this is like, maybe, hopefully, some of us, I'm not the only one, in in our marriages where when we sin against our spouse, and we don't confess, and we don't apologize, and we don't ask for forgiveness. We remain married, right? The covenantal relationship is still there, but we don't enjoy the intimacy. We don't enjoy the fellowship. Don't enjoy the communion that's possible. And that's what's happening with the psalmist here. And the way he describes it is, when he's cut off from communion with the source of life, it's like he's dying. The language is intense. My bones wasted away. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Uh, another way of putting it is that my, stri- my vitality was literally sapped or drained from my body. And this isn't hard for us to imagine at all, right? Uh, the last few days as we've looked at our yards and our gardens with the heat and the lack of rain, right? We see the effects of what happens whenever something is cut off from the source of life. As I was uh, reading this psalm this week, I was thinking about an experience I had in college in my scuba diving days. Yes, in another life, I was a scuba diver. And in my class, uh, one of the exercises that you have to do to become a scuba diver is, you know, you have to go down in the pool about 8 to 10 feet, and you have to practice taking your regulator out of your mouth underwater. we got some scuba divers here, right? Uh, and and you, have to be, you have to breathe. You have to exhale the whole time because you can't hold your breath because bad things happen to you after you've been breathing, breathing compressed air. And, and then you have to put the regulator back in your mouth and clear out all the water that's in there and go back to breathing normal. Well, this was really easy in 8 to 10 feet of water, right? Piece of cake. But in my open water test, which was in Lake Tenkiller, Oklahoma, which has a visibility of about 2 feet, right? Like you can literally see about this far in front of you. At 40 feet of water, as I'm doing my test, my instructor stops me, turns me underwater, and makes the sign to take the regulator out. And you know what I did? I looked at him and went, nope, I'm not doing that. Are you kidding? It's dark. It's 40 feet up to the top of the surface. This is the only thing that's keeping me alive. There's no way 
I'm taking this out of my mouth. And finally, after about four or five times of he coaxing me, I do it. And guess what? It was as terrifying as I thought it was going to be. It was horrible. I'm sitting there. I can't see. I'm just waiting for him to give this instruction to put it back in my mouth. And for several seconds, 40 feet underwater, I'm cut off from the very thing that I need to live. And that's how the psalmist describes his experience in verses three or four, three and four. He's cut off from life because of his unconfessed sin. And it's the seriousness with which the psalmist takes his sin that, that tells us that for the psalmist, confession isn't presumption. Confession is never presuming upon God's grace, where we take our sin lightly and we just go, oh, that God, he's a pretty nice guy. He's just always going to forgive me of my sin. So, you know what, if I sin, not a big deal. Psalmist has no, no idea that that's what it's really like. For the psalmist, what it's really like to have sin, unconfessed sin, is to face death. It's cut off from God. Turn real quickly to Psalm 42, and we see a picture of how the world of the Psalter imagines life. Psalm 42, this is a psalm that's familiar to a lot of us. And here the psalmist says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. The psalmist knew he had to have communion with God, because God is the source of life. And here is sin has cut him off from that. But as we see in verse 5, sin is not the decisive reality in this psalm. God's forgiveness is the decisive reality for the psalmist. Now, there's no explanation whatsoever in verse 4 why the psalmist won't confess his sin. And there's also no explanation whatsoever in verse 5 about why the psalmist goes from not confessing to all of a sudden confessing. But it's a profound movement. Some of the commentators even speak of it as, as a conversion, right? That, that the psalmist is denying and then he realizes, I need to confess. And so he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, this declaration in verse 5, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, in the English it kind of comes off flat, right? Let's just be honest. It's just kind of matter-of-factly. But the reality is, is that in the Hebrew, this you is an emphatic pronoun. And so the way it should really read is, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you... You, God, you, Lord, you, the only one who could do anything about my situation, you were the one who forgave the iniquity of my sin. If we were writing this, we'd we'd underline the word you with three underlines and we'd bold it and indent it and put little stars around it to make sure people understood uh, the emphasis that we were trying to make. And this declaration right here is the, the literary and the theological heart and center 
of this psalm. The whole psalm has been contracting to this one declaration, and the rest of the psalm expands away from it. And what we see with the psalmist's emphasis on God being the one to forgive the iniquity of sin is that our confession is not what is primary and determinative. God's mercy, God's grace, God's willingness to forgive us of our sin is what is primary and determinative. Confession is always a response to what we know to be true about God. We don't pull forgiveness from God through confession. God, through his grace and mercy and willingness to forgive, pulls confession from us. His grace, his mercy precedes our confession. And our confession is simply a response to what we know to be true about God. We also see that the psalmist understands that uh, there's nothing actually healing or cathartic about the confession itself. It's not the act of confession that changes the situation. It's not confession that changes anything about the psalmist's situation. It is God's forgiveness that changes everything. This isn't a situation like what we're kind of used to in our modern world where we've got secrets and we feel bad about things and we're told, you know, you just not, you got to get it off your chest. You know, just you'll feel better if you just kind of let it all out. And so we let it all out and we're like, whew, man, I feel better. That's not what the psalmist knows at all here. The psalmist doesn't speak into a void. God isn't some hypothetical in this situation. What changes everything is that the psalmist confesses and he hears a word back. He hears a word in return. And the word in return is the assurance of forgiveness. This is why it's so important that when we confess our sin, whether it's corporately or whether it's individually, that confession is always accompanied by the word of assurance. Because confession doesn't change anything. God's forgiveness is what changes everything. It's why we read from 1 John chapter 1 today that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Knowing that is what pulls confession out of us. God's forgiveness is decisive, and we see a major transition in the psalm from this point forward. In the first five verses, sin language is mentioned nine times. But once the psalmist acknowledges that God forgave the iniquity of his sin, all sin language falls off the pages of this psalm. God has so fully dealt with his sin. God has so fully removed the psalmist's sin that the psalmist cannot speak of it anymore. And so the psalmist turns his attention to intentional instruction. And the instruction is calling us to a life of confession. The psalmist's message to us is, is that, listen, if you know God is gracious and merciful to forgive you of your sin, then confess. That when sin happens in our lives, the only thing we can do is confess. And he unpacks this in verse 6. He says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Uh, Best for us to understand in the context of this psalm that the godly are those who trust that God forgives sin. And they turn to him for forgiveness. The prayer that the godly are to offer best understood as a prayer of confession. 
at a time when you may be found is pointing to the time when we need God most. And that is when we need him to forgive us of our sin. The psalmist is saying, listen, when you sin, when we sin, what we need most is for God to forgive us of our sin, to restore us to communion with him. And guess what? At that moment, that's when God may be found. So pray to him, call upon him. Uh, my five-year-old daughter, Eleanor, enjoys uh, the Disney show, Sophia the First. Um, my 14-year-old, Taylor, really likes it too, and she's going to be horrified that I shared that here because it's a show for little kids. And Sophia is this little cartoon princess who has this magical amulet. And uh, what the magical amulet does is anytime Sophia gets in trouble and she needs help, she's able to use the amulet and one of the Disney princesses will be summoned to offer her aid. And the show is maddening for me to watch. It really is because it's, it's so predictable. By about the 10th minute of every episode, uh, Sophia needs help. She needs to use the amulet, but there's about an eight minute gap every episode where Sophia doesn't and she just does dumb stuff and makes everything worse and Eleanor sitting there next to me just like on edge wondering what's going to happen and I'm like just use the amulet what what are you waiting for this can be done in 12 minutes let's just get this over with crazy And it's this kind of summoning that the psalmist is doing here. Saying, listen, at that moment when you need God's forgiveness, come to him in prayer. Offer that prayer of confession. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. What we see in this psalm and in Hebrews is God's willingness, his faithfulness, to forgive us of our sin, to help us, to meet us at our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Confidence, not in ourselves, not in our drawing near, not in our confession. Confidence in Jesus, our great high priest, mediating our way to God the Father, who stands ready and willing to respond to our need and to forgive us of our sin. We see in in the rest of 6 and 7 the 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 benefits of being forgiven and having communion with God restored. When the psalmist talks about surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him, he's he's most likely referring to the great waters that sin creates in our lives, right? When we sin, we know that chaos follows. 
But we know that our sin not only affects the relationship between us and God, but quite often the relationship that we have with others. And so this image of great waters and rushing waters, it's a picture of chaos. It's a picture of of life kind of disintegrating, right? Everything is breaking down. It's even kind of language of of anti-creation. The world is literally becoming uncreated. And while sin creates these kind of circumstances in our life, when God forgives us, these waters don't reach us. And in verse 7, we see what restored communion with God really looks like. We're able to say, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We've all probably been there when we've had unconfessed sin, and we know how difficult it is to hear the promises of God's faithfulness to us when we're caught in unconfessed sin. Because the communion has been ruptured, because there's this distance, it's easy for us to go, is God really with me? Will he really never leave me? Will he really never forsake me? Does he work all things for good according to his will? All those promises get called into question when our unconfessed sin ruptures that communion. And when we experience restored communion, we're put back in that protective relationship with God, whereby when we face difficulties, whenever the world comes against us, we know that God is with us. We have that assurance So we're protected by God and we're aware of it. The psalmist goes on and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And what's the content of this instruction? Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Essentially what the psalmist is saying is, don't be like I was back in verses 3 and 4. Don't do that. Every time I watch an episode of Sophia the First with Eleanor, I go, don't be like Sophia. Don't wait eight minutes to acknowledge your need. If you have need, admit it. Confess it. And the psalmist is saying, don't be like I was. Come, confess your sin to God. He finishes by pointing out a, a, the, the contrast that happens between unconfessed sin and confessed sin. Many of the sorrows of the wicked. The wicked here are not just those who sin. The psalmist sinned. The wicked are those who sin and who are absolutely convinced that they have no need of God's forgiveness. For whatever reason, they don't think that they need to have communion with God restored through God's forgiveness of sin. And so their sorrows are compounded, they're increased. But the great contrast, those who trust in the Lord, and here he's getting at those who trust in the Lord to forgive us of our sin, God's steadfast love surrounds us. He finishes with a call to a posture in the world that can only be uh, the most reasonable response to this incredible picture of God's blessing of forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. For, For the psalmist, how can we do anything less? 
when we really understand how destructive sin was in our lives and is in our lives, and when we really understand that when we're caught in unconfessed sin, that we're cut off from communion with God himself, and that what we need more than anything is to have that sin forgiven, and God graciously and mercifully does it, how can we do anything, anything other than be a people who are glad, happy, because we know we've been forgiven. Uh, t- in 2006, Lori and I uh, were living, Lori's my wife, for those who don't know, that's probably important to say. Um, Lori and I were living in New Orleans, um, and in August of 2006, we were approaching the, t- the one-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and in the, the couple weeks leading up to that anniversary, we began to get reports of Hurricane Ernesto. I don't know if Lori remembers this or not. But reports were saying that Hurricane Ernesto was forming in the Gulf and that it would make landfall near New Orleans and be a pretty devastating hurricane. Now, Lori and I lived less than a mile from one of the levees that collapsed in Hurricane Katrina. And when we got word of Ernesto, uh, that levee was nowhere close to being rebuilt. Most of them weren't. And we were a vulnerable city, and we knew it. And we remembered what it was like to have waters come rushing into our city and destroy everything. And so you can only imagine what it was like when Ernesto began to dissipate, when it became obvious that he wasn't going to hit, he wasn't going to hit New Orleans. We were filled with joy, glad beyond your wildest imagination, because we knew how blessed we were. We knew what it was like to be devastated by a hurricane, and we knew exactly what we had been spared from. And in the same way, the psalmist tells us, if we really understand what sin does to us, and we really understand the greatness of God's grace and his mercy and his willingness to forgive, and we will know just how blessed a people we are. Let us pray. Father, it is you and you alone who can and does forgive us of our sin. And it is entirely by your grace and your mercy, your willingness to forgive us of our sin, that we are constantly restored to communion with you. It's by your grace and your mercy that we're brought to life in the first place, that we're brought into the new life through faith in Jesus. And so, God, our prayer is that you will continually awaken us, help us to see just how blessed we are to have your forgiveness, that we would be filled with joy because we know we're a blessed people. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.